Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I'm hosting solo today as Jim is off on some kind of international escapade, a boondoggle as we used to call it in government. Um, but for today, we're turning back to Ukraine given the significant developments there. I want to note that this episode was recorded before the incident in Poland, where it now appears that a Ukrainian air defense missile struck into Poland, killing two civilians, and the barrage of Russian missiles that Russia unleashed on Ukraine. It has been the largest series of strikes on Ukrainian critical infrastructure since the war began. Nonetheless, the analysis on the implications of Ukraine's win in Kherson are unchanged, so we take you back to the podcast. Last week, Kiev accomplished another major milestone when its forces liberated the city of Kherson, forcing Russian troops to withdraw to the east side of the Dnipro River. The victory was perhaps Ukraine's second most important victory after its successful defense of Kiev and will have both strategic and symbolic significance, especially given that this was territory that Russia had illegally annexed and was the only regional capital that Moscow had taken during this war. The victory adds to Ukraine's momentum over the past few months, during which Kiev has retaken more than 74,000 square kilometers of its land since Russia's full invasion began, according to the Institute for the Study of War. Um, I think that is, according to the Rokan Consulting Ukraine update, half the territory that Moscow controlled at its peak. Uh, nonetheless, NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg recently stated that Quote, while the Russian defeat at Kherson is inspiring, it should not trigger complacency within the alliance. Ukraine still needs our support more than ever in the coming winter months. And so to discuss the implications of the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, including where Ukraine can go from here, how the United States and Europe can support Ukraine to end this war sooner rather than later, uh, and the risks that Kiev and the allies face in the coming months, we're really happy to have Mick Ryan and Mike Kaufman back to the podcast to share their thoughts. Welcome back to you both. Thanks, quick, Andrea. Great to be here. Quick bios. Uh, Mick is an adjunct fellow with the Australia Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also a, re a retired Major General in the Australian Army, as well as the author of War Transformed, the future of 21st century great power competition and conflict. And Mike is the research uh, program director at the Russia Studies program at CNA, as well as an adjunct senior fellow at CNES. Um, Mick, let me start with you. Um, you have written and talked a lot about Ukraine's strategy of corrosion, which kind of includes its ability to dis disrupt supply lines and kind of degrade Russian forces broadly. Can you talk a little bit about how that factored into the battle for Kherson and maybe just highlight any other factors that you see as helping us understand uh, Ukraine's victory there? Yeah, thanks, Andrea. I think it's worth noting up front that the term strategy of corrosion upsets a lot of people, particularly the purists who you know think there's only two strategies, annihilation or, or attrition. Um, and I accept that point of view and, you know, I've done a lot of doctrine and strategy work myself, but I think it explains best, particularly for the 99.9% .9 of people who are non-experts in military operations and strategy, um, some aspects of how Ukraine has undertaken the defence of its nation over the last eight months. In regards to what we've seen in the South, really this is about... Uh, implementing writ large the indirect approach that Liddell Hart, you know, spoke about and, and wrote about quite often. 
um, and that is, you know, targeting the enemy where they're weak. And the Russians, where they're weak, is their logistics. Uh, they are weak, in particularly in some areas of their supply hubs uh, in the south. It was the bridges over the Dnipro, um, and in particular, targeting the uh, morale of Russian soldiers. I mean, you know, it's it's not like all the units there were bad ones. In fact, some of the best Russian units were in the south, but you can still target south by interfering with logistics, fires, um, lots of artillery uh, barrages, particularly long-range strikes with HIMARS. And it's, it couples that with uh, direct attacks where it needs to. I mean, they don't want to waste manpower, but they, you've also got to engage in close combat. So all these things taken together, you know, I've described as a strategy of corrosion where it just slowly but surely corrodes the Russians from within. And I think this is less a story about Russian realignment and consolidation and withdrawal, and it's more about slow pressure from the Ukrainians forcing the Russians from an untenable position. Mike, you were just recently there, including down in Kherson, I believe, um, and had been thinking about, you know, the timeline under which we might see a Russian withdrawal. Kind of, you know, from your perspective and what you learned there, did this happen sooner than you expected or um, kind of? Yeah. I, mean, I, I think it happened quite faster and a lot more organized and cleaner than I expected. And it was clear to me before I even went uh, to do field work in Ukraine that looked like the Russian military was drawing down because it wasn't a precarious position. People like me were writing back maybe as far as April, actually, that that Tursone was one area they were unlikely to be able to hold on to, given just how the war was going and how the battle lines were shaping up. They were on the wrong side of a large river uh, without a lot of bridges across it and with a sizable amount of terrain they'd have to defend, a pretty big footprint, right? against a force that was only generating more manpower and was working with interior lines, had all the advantages, basically. So this was sort of not uh, an if, but a when, from my point of view. I was just surprised that the one came so fast. Um, okay, that said, uh, I, I, will, I will add that it was clear that the Kherson offensive was a very challenging one. In fact, it was much more attritional than not. Over two months, Ukrainian forces took significant casualties in trying to attack Russian positions. I think some of the story about HIMARS, to be perfectly honest, was quite oversold. It was clear that the Russian military over time was adapting to HIMARS, although it was very much disrupting their capacity to sustain fires. I think eventually it did degrade Russian logistics, forcing them to withdraw. But a big part of that story is also what's been happening on the ammunition front in Russia. That is, the Russian military began to rethink its position and eventually got political approval. This is just one analyst impression, obviously. But after Kharkiv, it got political approval for a defensive strategy, which meant drawing down from places that they couldn't hold like your son and trying to conserve ammunition and then trying to entrench behind defensible lines. Okay, so for Ukraine, this is a significant strategic victory. I don't want to take away from that. But the better part of Russian forces and the bulk of their equipment that could be withdrawn was withdrawn across the river in a fairly organized and short order amount of time. And Ukrainians, to some extent, I think, let them do it because they didn't want to have a bloody destructive battle for the capital they're trying to recapture. If Kherson was recaptured and ended up looking like Mariupol by the end of that story, it wouldn't have been nearly as much of a political success. I think anyone can agree on that. It's not a very controversial point. 
So I think from Ukraine's standpoint of view, all strategies are about choices, right? They are about trade-offs. That's what they that, how they reveal themselves. And they made the choice to press Russian forces after Kherson, but let them withdraw in order to avoid this destructive fight and preserve the Ukrainian military as well for the future. But that, of course, also means that they will have to face these Russian troops down the line on a different front in the in the future as well. Um, I I would add, I, I actually think it was probably much more of a direct fight. And my sense, my sense of that fight is that it was definitely going Ukraine's way, but very slowly and probably slower than they themselves had wanted to see it. So it, it was very different than what you see in Kharkiv and, and the other parts of the battlefield. Right. So zoom out for a second, Mick, and talk to us about the implications of this victory. What does it mean, you know, both tactically, but also symbolically um, for, for the Ukrainians? Um, I think there's a couple of interesting things. Um, something I'm very interested in at the moment is what does this mean uh, for the new Russian commander Srovkin? I mean, I think Michael was on the money when he said this withdrawal was conducted in better order than I think a lot of people expected, or at least better than uh, a lot of the non-experts expected. A withdrawal is an extraordinarily difficult thing to undertake. There's no such thing as a good withdrawal. It was necessary to prevent a catastrophe, both physical and, um, and propaganda-wise, for the Russians. Um, so, you know, Sorovkin showed that he was able to execute this in reasonably good order. Um, you know, and I think for the Ukrainians, that means that they might be up against a commander now who's a little different. I mean, I'll take Michael's advice on this, but, you know, up against a unified commander now that, um, albeit more brutal, but maybe a little bit more competent than some of his predecessors, that might change the Ukrainian calculus. Um, but it also confirms that, you know, the Ukrainians have the, the initiative in this war and they have momentum going into winter. Um, people have fought in winter for millennia. Uh, somehow this narrative has got out that, you know, things are going to stop over winter, which is just historically uh, silly. <laughs> I mean, there's no historical evidence that people just down tools for four months and go into nice warm places. It will change the tempo and style of operations. But there's no way the Ukrainians are going to give up the initiative that they fought hard for over eight months. We'll see continued Ukrainian initiatives where they'll be. I mean, you can speculate till the cows come home, but I expect that, you know, the Ukrainians are canny and most importantly, opportunistic would be my observation. They're good at recognising opportunities that could come anywhere across the south. I don't expect them to be undertaking mass river crossings into the main defensive position of the Russians. I mean, that's just crazy. Uh, even the Russians probably wouldn't do that. So I think we'll continue to see opportunistic attacks and initiatives from the Ukrainians throughout winter. They need to maintain the momentum. They need to maintain Western support, importantly. And they need to keep doing things to try and kill this narrative that it's time for negotiations, which it very definitely is not from the Ukrainian perspective. So there's a range of things that they'll want to keep doing both tactically, strategically, and, and as well as politically to maintain momentum and kill this time to negotiate narrative that seems to be um, arising in different places at the moment. 
Mike, anything you want to add? I mean, like kind of tactically, right? It ends Russia's any hopes of moving on to Odessa. What does it do for um, Ukraine's ability to attack into Crimea, for example? Can you tell us a little more? I don't know anything you want to add to what Mick said in terms of kind of tactical implications of this victory. Okay. Uh, well, let me add to Mick's great comments. First, at the strategic level, it denies Russia following Southern Coast campaign now moving forward. And that is a big, big victory because that, that essentially eliminates worst case scenarios for Ukraine for now. Second, it allows Ukraine to move up long range fires. It won't range down to Crimea with HIMARS, but it will cover a lot of Kyrgyzstan and it'll displace Russian logistics even further out and can make Russian life difficult over the course of the winter. Third, just as Russia will try to now use the Dnieper as a natural barrier, it's not an insurmountable barrier, but it's a pretty big river. Yes, you can cross it. Okay, right, don't get me wrong. You can you can cross most water mountains, but certainly makes life challenging. And keep in mind, Russian forces blew all the bridges when they withdrew, and they also blew the rogue chunk of the Kakovka Dam as well, just to make sure. Um, so Ukraine can also now shift all those forces east, right? They too can now move from Kherson and they can try to replenish those units, right? And when they're rested, continue pressing that attack. I think I'd outline a couple scenarios the way I see the winter going. First, I agree with Mick. I'm originally um, from Ukraine and people fight in that part of the world in the winter all the time. Okay. And Mick, when we were in Ukraine, we asked the senior military leaders about what winter might hold, right? And he, they've been at this for 10 years. I mean, even, I mean, obviously, there's the longer horizon, as you mentioned, but he said they've been at it 10 years, and there's no reason that winter is going to interfere. So just, yeah. yeah. Okay. 10 years, 10 years and a thousand years, right? Yeah. The main issue with winter is it's going to make any large-scale offensive operation very difficult, particularly the first two months. Uh, November, December. Then after that, we'll see. It depends what kind of winter you also end up getting. So it's likely to move us more into an attritional phase with different kinds of raids and maybe some dynamic exchange of territory. Again, it depends a bit. The Russian main strategy is to entrench, try to reconstitute force over the course of the winter, be in a better place after February, use mobilized personnel, get additional ammo equipment, try to get out of the winter with a force that can retake the initiative. Okay. Ukraine's strategy is to counter that strategy, prevent Russia from being able to do that, press them, try to leverage what advantages they have, let's say quality of advantage and fires, what have you, try to attrition Russian forces, see if they can work off the fact that Russia has a difficult problem with morale and deployed mobilized personnel, just to make sure that they're not able to recover over the course of the winter. Then whatever happens during the winter, Ukrainian military may be able to go onto the offensive thereafter in the spring. Also, Ukraine has its own vision for how to build operational level formations, plus up their own force, right? They they are, they are still shaking out what is a mobilized force where the military expanded several times its original size, right? Where people have mixtures of training, they're under-equipped. And a lot of the equipment they have is a hodgepodge of equipment they got from the West, right? Some of it is good. Some of it are frankly hand-me-downs, things that people rummaged for in their in their backyard and 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 gave it to them for Ukrainians from the 70s, 80s, and any other time period of the 20th century, right? Um, and it's a big mix of stuff that needs to be maintained, that needs to be repaired. A lot of the ammo isn't necessarily interchangeable in between this, these uh, uh, these units. So Ukraine has a whole host of issues they can be solving during this time period as well, uh, especially since the pressure is largely off of them. Outside of Wagner's relatively pointless attacks of Bakhmut, there's a lot of pressure on Ukrainian forces, right? 
So this is a time to put the military in a better place as well. Okay, so I have a, a, a joint question because I think, I mean, Mike, you just explained the dynamic perfectly, which is the way I think most people are seeing it, which is over this time period, like the risk now becomes that Russia can consolidate its forces in a smaller area and that we move towards more of a stalemate and a long drawn out conflict. And like, as you said, the goal is for Ukraine to not be, to, to prevent that from happening. So my question, Mick, for you is, what do you think Ukraine needs from the West in order to be in the best possible position to try to disrupt, complicate Russia's ability to dig in that way? And then Mike, th the risk is that they reconstitute forces and perhaps with conscription and other things, potentially form some sort of offensive capability in the spring. I think that's probably, I, my sense is that a lot of people think that's improbable but I'd love to hear you weigh in on if they can successfully hold the line. Is there any prospect that Russia could put together more offensive capabilities come springtime? So sorry for the separate kind of questions, but I see them as related. So Mick, you first. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think the Ukrainians from the president down have been fairly consistent in their messaging about what they need from the West. I mean, the president in particular has been consistently talking about closing the skies, right? He did it when we were there and has, has used that term multiple times. So, you know, air defence uh, against missiles and aircraft is a really important capability. It's still a fairly hodgepodge system that the Ukrainians are running. I mean, in some respects, they're running short on the munitions for their air defence systems. So they've been very good at, uh, you know, the survivability and moving them. But, you know, you need missiles to shoot down things. And that's, you know, they've been using aircraft to do that at times just because they're running short on air defence. So that's a priority because it protects the Ukrainian people, but it also, uh, I think, protects infrastructure and, you know, gives confidence to foreign investors to come back to Ukraine. I mean, it's a really important part. Um, the Ukrainians need money, right? They need foreign investment. Um, and if you've got missiles raining down, that's very difficult to do. Um, clearly, they need an ongoing supply of munitions, and that appears to be causing more and more trouble with the West and also the United States. We've seen this deal with uh, Korea now providing uh, artillery ammunition uh, through the United States. We're probably going to see more of those kind of deals where non-traditional suppliers who have active uh, industries, unlike Europe, that can produce large batches, not small, exquisite batches. Um, and then I think, you know, when it comes to equipment, you're going to see more armoured fighting vehicles required by the Ukrainians. I mean, armoured fighting vehicles uh, not only are necessary, particularly in close combat, you know, if that last 100 metres is a really important time. And if you can do it behind armour with a gun system, good sensors, good communications and a digital battlefield command support system, you're in much better shape. Um, and the Ukrainians, like the Russians, have lost a lot of armoured vehicles. Armoured vehicles just break down. Um, they're difficult to maintain. So both tanks, IFVs and all the support vehicles, more importantly, the go-with-them fuel, uh, tanker trailers, all those kind of things are going to be uh, required. So, you know, that's the kind of equipment sets. I think there's a larger issue around standardisation. Um, you know, when you've got 14 different types of artillery equipment, and then they all use different charge bags and different rounds. Clearly, things like NATO standardization agreements, the old STANAGs, 
We've been very poor at policing on ourselves. We really need to pay attention to that moving forward. There needs to be a you know, better approach to standardising the equipment for the Ukrainians for both training and support measures. And finally, I think the training missions, I think, can step up. And one of the, you know, it's not just about basic training. I think NCO or junior officer training, training for planners, you know, not a SOAR course, a year-long course, but, you know, things to help them with their planning capacity to synchronise larger-scale operations come the spring. So, you know, they're the kind of things that the Ukrainians will probably be uh, needing uh, now. They've needed it all the way through and will need it for some time. Um, and, you know, the narrative around, well, Ukraine will only survive with Western support that may or may not be the case, but remember, Britain only survived with US support in 1940, and Russia only survived 1941 with US and Lendley support as well. So this isn't uh, historically anomalous. It's uh, pretty much standard when it comes to these kind of big wars. Mick, what about the longer range artillery like the Attackums? That's obviously the thing that captures imaginations and and the kind of passions of people here in DC. How important is that, do you think, to for Ukraine to be able to continue to retake territory? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of giving uh, the Ukrainians our tachyms, but remember, it's it's one missile. Um, you know, it's for very high-value targets. It's not like you're doing battlefield suppression with these things. It's a precision long-range strike tool. I think it would just be another good golf club for the golf bag of strike capabilities for the Ukrainians. But remember, they've also got an air force. Uh, they've got uh, indigenous systems as well. They've got special forces and a whole range of other things. So I don't think it is that core capability they need, but I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be provided it now. The, the number of escalations the Russians have made through this war, I, I think ATACMS is a no-brainer. Uh, but, you know, I'm not the national security advisor sitting in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I think I mean I've just been in recent conversations about this this real sense of urgency to lean in given this kind of picture that we're talking about that we don't want the Russian line to consolidate. And so what else is it that we could provide to end the war sooner than later? Inevitably the conversation comes back to tanks and the Germans unwillingness to provide those and then on the United States I feel like it's the attackums and the White House's reticence to do that. And you can, I sense maybe mounting frustration, especially after we've heard the Ukrainians say that they would give the United States guarantees that they would kind of pre-check uh, targets to try to tamp down on the risk that Ukraine would use it to strike into Russian territory. Anyway, I mean, I, again, and I guess it it's helpful to hear kind of how that system fits into the broader spectrum and kind of thinking through I, you know, I guess it is a trade-off, trade-off, the risk of escalation versus how useful is it for the Ukrainians to be able to lean in um, and capitalize on these gains. Well, remember, just having that kind of weapon forces the Russians into a different calculus. It means they need to deploy differently. It means they need to disperse things that might otherwise be high-value targets differently. We've seen this adaptation already to HIMARS. ATACMS will just continue that process. Um, you know, but on the other side, it might force the Russians to adapt in a way we don't want them to. So, you know, you need to think about the counters and counter counters uh, of the introduction of these kind of weapons. But personally, I'm, I'm, I'm in favour, but um, and I think the Ukrainians have been responsible users of Western technology in the large. But remember, it's a war. Um, and sometimes you just need to do things if you want your country to exist at the end of it. Yeah, really helpful. OK, so, Mike, then the like part two of that question was. 
if if they a what are the prospects that with mobilization that the Russians will be able to consolidate the defensive lines? And I think we're seeing more and more. And Mick, you've written on this too about the way that they're setting up defensive positions. But so how 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 effective do you think uh, mobilization will be in terms of firming up the Russian line? And then how do we think about the spring? Um, and conscription and Russia's ability to regenerate enough capacity to actually put together a more offensive force come spring. Yeah, so I can probably think of about three ways this can go. I won't be reductionist, but you know, you need to have a reasonable number of scenarios. I think that uh, definitely the most optimistic, but I think unlikely scenario for Ukraine is that parts of the Russian line collapse because mobilized personnel can't be supported in the winter. Morale breaks. You've seen lots of news, lots of footage of uh, the freshly mobilized personnel complaining about their treatment, lack of supplies, um, fairly cynical and humane approach by officers. But actually, probably only 50,000 mobilized personnel have been deployed out of well over 200,000 they mobilized. They have a pretty large number of people they've conscripted. Now they are actually going through with the fall conscription as well, of another 120,000. And after that, they might renew mobilization for a second wave. So we'll see. Uh, I don't think numbers are deterministic, but they do matter in war. And anybody who tells you that numbers don't matter at war, I think is trying to sell you something. Quality matters, quantity matters too. And they 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 really help shape force employment options to an extent. Um, so I think that uh, maybe the optimistic scenario is worth considering, but not as likely to come to pass. I think the really pessimistic scenario is that Russia is able to re restore offensive potential, but I think this is not that likely either. It's just sort of a worst case scenario that people have to plan around. I think that the reason for that actually has less to do with mobilization, more to do with what in my mind are, are broader constraints on Russian supply of ammunition equipment that'll take longer time to solve uh, to be able to restore offensive potential. And I think that probably Russia's military leadership will keep pressing for a defensive strategy, but nonetheless be forced to conduct localized attacks in Donetsk. Because from my impression, Russian political leadership still very much wants to take all the Donbass and are refusing to, to abandon this as a minimal goal. How realistic is militarily is a separate issue. As you can see, that political objectives versus military means have not had a very good alignment in the Russian approach to this war, right? Uh, they've, they've clearly been very much apart. On the perhaps re more likely scenario is that uh, Russia is able to establish a much higher ratio of forces to the territory they're trying to defend, and they're able to use the Dnieper River as a natural boundary, and they can develop reserves and the capacity to rotate forces. And that simply means that Ukraine's further offenses are going to be more challenging. They'll take more time. They'll take more ammunition. They'll be more costly, potentially. And that uh, sort of the easier gains, the rapid breakthrough at Kharkiv, when there were almost no Russian forces there and nothing cohesive to defend with. And the situation in Kherson, where after several months, the Russian military couldn't sustain the position and made the decision to, to retreat. Uh, that those situations are less likely to come about. I'm not saying they won't. I'm just saying that, you know, the, the odds are lower. And so folks need to settle in 
for a war where Ukraine is going to need more ammunition than it's been getting. It's going to need a sustainable pipeline. It's going to need equipment. Um, I'm on the same page with Nick and what he said earlier about air defense and uh, greater standardization and the issue of the diversity of systems that Ukrainians have received and the fact that over time they will be running out of all Soviet types of ammunition and we'll have to switch to more NATO uh, standard ammo or not standard, but at least the ammo that can be supplied by Western countries. Just, the longer the war goes on, the more this is going to keep happening across different systems. I think that the, the worthwhile question to pursue here is, what does the long-term look like in this war? The Russian strategy appears to be to just extend the war. Okay, Extend the war such that Russia doesn't necessarily at all win it. It's, it's looking like a strategic defeat for Russia. But they're trying to make it so Ukraine loses also. Like a lot of folks don't appreciate that a defeat for Russia is not necessarily a victory for Ukraine. That's important to consider. I just want to put, put it out there. Uh, it, it depends on how the sense. And the Russian strategy is to economically exhaust Ukraine, to extend the war, and to conduct a strike campaign to drag out attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure to prevent people from returning to Ukraine refugees, prevent the return of investment, keep the war from being localized, that strike different cities so there's a sense of a nationwide war as opposed to a localized war along a very particular front, and to try to raise the long-term cost to the West. Um, I think that they pretty consistently underestimated the lengths to which the West is willing to go. To, to see this fight through. And I think that the Russian effort has been largely subject to optimism bias pretty extensively. But be that what it may, you know, my job here is just to paint to what I think uh, the Russian approach is and what they're trying to do. And the one thing I'll say about Surovikin is yeah, he's probably been more competent than others. Certainly a lot more competent than Lopin, who got fired recently. But the main, the main change that you've seen since Harkov is that Putin, in appointing him, has subscribed to his prescriptions. And he was one of the clear advocates for withdrawing from Kherson and for pursuing a defensive strategy. And with if Surovikin is able to have his way, then military means may increasingly become uh, more in alignment with what Russia is trying to pursue in this war. Because the, the biggest problems, for all the problems that the Russian military has had, right, and we would need multiple podcasts to enumerate them, the political leadership has been completely out to lunch regarding the real situation in this war, right? I mean, it's it took Kharkiv for, for, for Putin to realize that the way he saw this war going was an alternate reality. And, and that still may be the case. He may still be, he may still be really uh, missing the situation on the ground. But it looks like he's allowed them to retreat from Kherson, which to me constitutes a change. I don't know what Nick thinks of this. But that's a pretty big deal because he annexed her son and allowed the military to retreat from the capital of what is now constitutionally Russian territory that he just annexed. Yeah, no, I think Mike's on the money there. I mean, all the way from the start of the war, we've seen a misalignment of Russian policy with the military means allocated for the war. I mean, in essence, you had these grand strategic ambitions outlined by Putin you know, uh, around Ukraine not being a real country and having aspirations to one way or another control all of Ukraine, but allocating a force of less than 200,000 for a country that's absolutely massive 
And having that force really disaggregated, disconnected and not commanded uh, centrally. So for the last eight months, we've seen a total misalignment of grand policy objectives with meagre military means allocated to it. And I mean meagre by the... <laughs> By, by the standard of big superpowers. So Mike's right. I think Sorovkin and Putin have brought the military and political side of things into better alignment. Um, I, I think that is, for the Russians, a positive um, a development. Now, whether they can make that work for them in the medium and long term remains to be seen clearly, but I think it demonstrates that they are learning. Um, both the political and the military sides are adapting, and we shouldn't just you know, stick with this narrative that the, you know, a lot of people with Twitter handles who think themselves strategic experts um, see as the Russians are just stupid, brutal orcs. I mean, they, they're clearly not, even though they do lots of repulsive things, they're a thinking, learning and adapting organisation, just different to the thinking, learning organisations that we might be used to. Yeah, good, good points. Um, what, Mike, um, Putin hasn't yet commented in public about the Russian withdrawal Kherson. Um, do you, I don't know if you want to weigh in or say anything about how you think Russian setbacks are playing out in Moscow um, and whether or not, I, I, what does that look like on the domestic front? What's your sense? What's your view? I mean, I think they managed withdrawal from Kherson obviously much better than they did Izum and Limon. And they socialized the fact that they would have to withdraw pretty early on. As soon as Sorovico was appointed, he came out and said that they would have to make difficult decisions regarding Kherson. And that was an early signal that they were deliberating withdrawal. I think that, you know, as always on the domestic front, lots of people are unhappy with it, and they can see that Russia is losing the war. Um, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know how much that matters really to Putin, to be perfectly frank. Most of those people, they're using their anger to attack others within the system who they see as vulnerable to get more. They're right. not attacking- going after the mayor of St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg, et cetera, et cetera. They are going after other elites and their patronage networks because they sense an opportunity, okay? For Putin, he can sit back and watch this. All right, no one's gonna go after him. He can actually destroy all these people. It's, it's, not, it's not that significant challenge for him. I want people to understand that Losing Kherson isn't going to do much to Putin or his regime. And he may not actually care all that much between these individuals uh, how it plays out uh, and, and let them eat away at each other. That's what's taking place behind the scenes. Yeah, I think the only counter I would say to that, and I agree with that, though, is like over time, there's always divisions within the Russian elite and Putin's ability has been to kind of balance competing factions um, against one another. But my, again, is from studying authoritarian politics, when these divisions spill over into the public domain, that does start to create a different dynamic. And I'm not saying immediately, but over time, it kind of erodes people's sense of the competence and the um, kind of cohesion of the regime such that over time, they might be more willing to take a stand. And I know that's probably um, a different take than some people have, but based on the way that the, the kind of the relationship between elite divisions and fissures and the way that shapes public perceptions of the regime, um, it does corrode the way that people view the regime over time. Um, okay, so Mick, um, if you were sitting in Kiev and thinking about what steps are next, and again, with the priority being trying to prevent the Russians from consolidating their lines, 
what, what kind of moves would you be contemplating? And I, and I, maybe this is not related or, or it is, um, Zaporizhia seems to be one of the big kind of question marks. And a lot of people are homing in on Zaporizhia as really critical, right? That, that's one way that you can cut the land bridge to Crimea, et cetera, et cetera. Is that even within the realm of possible over the next several months, or is that still a bridge too far? So what if, what, you know, what what do you expect from the Ukrainians in coming months? I guess I'd start from the top, uh, not from the tactical. I mean, from the Ukrainians, you're going to see Zelensky, uh, his defence minister uh, in particular, continuing their engagement with NATO, the US, and key European, including Eastern European cows, to keep the supply coming. I mean, it's really important they counter the narrative from some on the far right in the US, and Mike could probably talk better on how much traction that's got, my sense is not as much as some might have hoped, uh, to keep the flow of munitions and support and intelligence and economic assistance in particular flowing in Ukraine. You, can, you can't fight a war without money. Um, so, you know, at the political level, Zelensky and his government absolutely have to keep the resources flowing um, well into 2023 um, and hold NATO to its promise that they would support Ukraine through to the end. That, that's the political level. I think at the strategic level, clearly Zhilizhny and his team will be looking at forced generation and regeneration after what has been eight really tough months. They're not taking a pause to do that. They need to do it in stride. You know, the old metaphor, building the plane while you're flying it. That's what they're doing with the Ukrainian army. So that includes training. It, it includes equipment maintenance. It includes probably developing new weapons. Uh, it includes, you know, priorities for supply in different parts of the country and planning for what will happen throughout 2023. Although from what I hear, there's not a lot of forward planning, but, I, you know, I think they'll be turning their minds to 2023. Uh, at the operational side of things, clearly did the two big commands, you know, your Eastern Command and, and the Southern Command for the Ukrainians will be looking for opportunities. They will have been and will continue to be engaged in a recon battle you know, fighting for information about the enemy and denying the Russians the ability to gain uh, information on the Ukrainians. And like they did around Kharkiv, they'll be looking for those opportunities that they can exploit, uh, not cheaply, but, you know, with uh, a modicum of resources without denuding other parts of the front. So, you know, I'd say, you know, they've been looking along Zaporizhia uh, and other areas for opportunities, Northern Kherson, uh, Crimea for opportunities to exploit over the winter with a different style of operation, noting that large-scale ground offences will be very difficult to coordinate. So, I mean, that's how, how I see it at the moment. Um, you know, it, it's a top-to-bottom, hopefully integrated system from political down to tactical. I think the Ukrainians have shown themselves better at this than the Russians. Not perfect. It's Everything in this system is really hard. But I think, you know, they're ahead of the Russians when it comes to the integration of political strategic, operational and tactical. And I think, you know, that advantage will continue to play out as we move into winter and uh, the 2023 uh, campaigns. Mike, last question for you. We didn't really get into your trip to Ukraine, but anything that you learned there that um, has shaped your understanding of how things might progress in the near term? And then I guess as an analyst, what are the things that you're watching most closely to give you a sense of how things will develop in the coming months? I got the sense in Ukraine that morale is very high there and that there's a strong sense that Ukraine is winning. I also saw that a lot of the Ukrainian effort is very much ground up. 
and it is still put together by volunteers and horizontal linkages. I saw that a lot of Western reporting and takes on how Ukraine running this war is factually incorrect. It's not run by a professional NCO corps that looks like that in the United States. It's not run by brilliant logistics. It's not run by incredibly uh, distinct, um, you know, special forces operations and Toyota pickups. Uh, everybody would like to have armored uh, protection and protected mobility on the battlefield. I myself was in a Japanese Toyota. And it just like most uh, Ukrainians getting around the battlefield, and um, uh, it it's because that's what's available, okay, and and, that, and that's how you do it. And the roads are terrible, and many of the places are still mined. So this is the reality of the situation. Um, you know, military operations when you look at a good one, it's pretty messy, okay. And uh, and, and the Ukrainian operation, I think, is really good for what it is. I think that it's a military with really great junior leadership, really great low-level military leadership at those echelons, platoon, company, battalion commanders. I think it's benefited from some fresher leadership at the top. Uh, I I learned a lot of interesting things, which I'm not going to share on this podcast. Um, I I have spent some time with uh, Ukrainian special forces, which is pretty fascinating, and toured the southern cities, you know, Odessa, Mikolaev, um, uh, I guess true may be the wrong word, but but nonetheless, uh, it it was it, it was a lot safer than I think I think many might imagine. And went to Kherson battlefield, which is now a battle that's been resolved. But at the time when I was there, it was quite ongoing um, and and very active. So uh, what else I can add to that? I I got the sense that the Ukrainian military has a vision. It's also cognizant of the scenarios that I've laid out in this discussion here. Uh, it has higher concerns about other things, perhaps, um, at least for example, you know, will Russian forces return to the north, to Belarus? You know, Russia displaced a sizable number of troops from Kherson. Where are they going to go? Are they going to go to the south? Are they going to go to Donbass? Like I said, it's clear to the Ukrainian military they will have to face them again elsewhere. It's, a, it's just a matter of where. Uh, I think the biggest question Ukrainians all had, I'll be honest, to some extent, you know, now been some semi-resolved, and that was about the U.S. midterm elections and what the political situation in the United States holds for their support. Most folks in Ukraine are very blunt. They understand that they are long-term advantage, but that advantage hinges on external material assistance. And the main variable, not the only one, but the main variable in that is the United States for a whole host of reasons, okay? So they're laser focused on the political situation in the United States and what it might mean for them. And I, to be honest, I think they're far more worried about it than they should be. I actually think that in many ways, bipartisan support for them is somewhat locked in, despite the optics that you hear in D.C. from certain members of Congress who will be very vocal, but the funding and the material assistance actually will keep flowing. But understand if this war keeps going, if we get towards U.S. presidential elections, then the questions become a lot harder and the uncertainty uh, really expand. So I'll I'll leave it at that. I'm just sort of trying to give a quick survey of some of the things I heard, some things I learned. Uh, it'll be disappointing. I can't say a lot of the things I saw there, um, but but nonetheless, uh, it it was a very worthwhile trip. And, and a lot of times you do you also do this to see what you could get out of it, how you can figure out how best to help without being in the way. I should note, Mike, you also have a new podcast, and I'm blanking on what it's called because I was advocating that it was called the Beat. So that it could mirror Brussels sprouts, but now, I forget what you settled we're, on. 
we were going to call it strategic asparagus, but we decided <laughs> against that. And so we, we called it the Russia contingency instead. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So everyone should give that a listen to. I want to give it a plug. Um, it's a great podcast. So folks should also check out Mike there. Um, and I just want to thank both of you. I mean, I think we all have a sense that this is a pretty important moment in this war. I think, again, there's a lot of um, uh, hope, desire um, that the United States and Europe can step in and do more and lean in in order to help Ukraine sustain the momentum that it has to make this a shorter rather than a longer war. You have both kind of articulated the dynamics around that and where I think the United States and West is best place to help Mick talking about the air defenses, munitions, the fight armored fighting vehicles, long range artillery. Um, so there's a lot that I hope that Western leaders will do um, to end this sooner rather than later, because my sense too, Mike, that you highlighted this, I think Putin wants to stay in this war for a long time because he's counting on the West to grow exhausted. Um, and so there's certainly risks to, to letting this continue um, over, over the prolonged term. So again, thanks to you both for doing this. I'm sure we'll do it again. Um, hopefully we won't be doing it that much longer um, if we can get to, to the end of this conflict, but um, recognizing we probably are looking at a longer conflict. So I'm sure we'll be back at it soon. So thanks. That's a, that's a long-winded thank you to you both. Thanks, Andrea. It's great to talk to you and Mike again. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.